From KUAR News in Little Rock, this is a look at Arkansas news, politics, and more. Coming up. The 45th president is sworn into office. We'll have a look at what Arkansas's congressmen want him to do in the first 100 days. It's week two of the 91st General Assembly. We'll have an update on several bills. Those involve tax cuts, food stamp restrictions, medical marijuana, ethics bills, the lottery, and abortion restrictions. And finally, the Little Rock School District announces plans to close several schools, drawing outrage from many parents. I'm Chris Hickey. I'm Michael Hiplin. I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Bobby Ampazan of Arkansas Public Media. That's just ahead. Well, as we record the podcast on Friday morning, uh, Jacob, we've got the uh, inaugural celebration continuing at this point for incoming President Donald Trump. Uh, he just uh, made his speech, and now we're hearing uh, more of the pomp and circumstance. But there's uh, a lot that's uh, expected of him from uh, people who supported his candidacy. You spoke with uh, Congressman French Hill representing the 2nd District here in Central Arkansas. What are his thoughts? What would he like to see the president do first thing in office, or at least in his first hundred days? Republicans have a really big agenda in Congress. It's uh, Affordable Care Act, repealing that is a top priority. The Dodd-Frank Act, repealing some banking regulations is a big priority as well. All sorts of broad-based tax reform. Uh, immigration is, of course, a huge issue, issue with Donald Trump, as is trade. Trade will probably be something he disagrees with on his party on a lot of things, because Donald Trump favors more fair trade and protectionism, and Republicans historically have favored more free trade type of deals. Um so uh, leading into this, I asked, I interviewed French Hill before the inaugural speech. He said he wanted the president-elect to strike a conciliatory tone, uh, emphasizing that we are all one nation and urging cooperation and things like that. And I think that, I don't want to talk too much about the president's inaugural address because we just sort of listened to it. Haven't got a lot of time to listen to it. But um, this is French Hill. Uh, I asked him first, actually, about the idea that Democrats were 50 or 70 or so U.S. House members, his colleagues, didn't attend. Uh, he was disappointed by that. We've really been a paradigm a of uh, leadership in democracy across the world, the world's oldest democracy. We've had these transfers of power between rightly elected uh, presidents uh, since uh, George Washington turned it over to uh, John Adams back in March 1797. So I put a big premise on this is important for our country to show unity and respect for our Constitution and for the peaceful transition of power. So I am disappointed that, that members are not attending the, the ceremony. Although, since you brought up Adams, I, I heard on NPR that a he and his son later when he was president weren't too fond of attending the inaugurations of their successors. <laughs> of course, yeah, you're right. Uh, and, you know, that that's a good point about uh, Thomas uh, Jefferson or uh, – Andrew Jackson. I mean, there's, we've always had bitter, aggressive campaign rhetoric in this great 240-year experiment. And so I, I saw the race last year no different. So disappointed his colleagues, but certainly not unprecedented for people opposed to the president-elect that's becoming president not to attend. Um, French Hill, he's, this is his second term in Congress. He'll be the third-ranking member on the House Financial Services Committee, the committee whip. Uh, he's a former banker himself, so 
Dodd-Frank and banking regulations are at the top of his agenda? Well, I think uh, the heart at uh, having banks that operate safely and soundly is to have high levels of capital. And one of the themes around Dodd-Frank and the regulatory system since the Great Recession was to make sure that banks of all sizes carry adequate capital. That was principally a problem, though, for the biggest banks, the mega banks, uh, headquartered in New York on Wall Street, had much lower capital than our community banks. And that's why so many of our community banks made it through uh, the recession. But what Dodd-Frank did, Jacob, was, I think, overreact to challenges during the recession and raise compliance and regulatory costs so much that it has reduced uh, the rate that those community banks that you referenced uh, in Arkansas, the rate that they can grow, the rate that they can expand and serve their customers with product innovation and uh, do so as profitably as they could a generation ago. Uh, so Dodd-Frank and all the banking regulations stuff, obviously it takes way more time and expertise than we can provide on this podcast today to listeners. But one of the big deals, it'll probably end up being a piecemeal fashion because Democrats uh, still have a great deal of seats in the U.S. Senate, even though they're, they're a minority. So anything that passes the House will have a tough time with Democrats in the Senate. But things like uh, reducing stress tests for banks is one big thing they want to do. They want to weaken the power of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, but, you know, he mentioned community-based banks. This week was a really great week for Arkansas banks all around. Uh, Centennial Bank and Simmons Bank both posted fourth quarter profits where they're up in the double digits. Bear State Bank is a community bank, not a big bank. Talk business and politics describe them as fast growing. Uh, one of those banks has had, I think, 25 quarters in a row of record profits. So Dodd-Frank might be stifling growth, but Arkansas, at least for some of the banks this week, they had some pretty phenomenal closeout to their year. Uh, big deal for Arkansas is the Affordable Care Act particularly because 300,000-plus people get Medicaid expansion coverage. That's all possible by the Affordable Care Act. I asked uh, French Hill about what he wants the replacement to be. Well, Medicaid has had at its heart uh, providing uh, health care access to those with the least resources. And, of course, the expansion was to increase that modestly. What I think the idea behind a block grant is is to let governors tailor uh, their health care services uh, to those with the least financial resources in a way that fits the state's uh, uh, geography and a mix of those at the poverty line. Uh, and so that's what attracts me to that idea is the flexibility, because many aspects of the Affordable Care Act have actually driven up the cost to provide those services under mm -hmm. Arkansas Works by virtue of the benefit package and, and the way it, uh, some of the top-down structures of the Affordable Care Act. So we've talked kind of before about this idea of a block grant. It's basically the federal government giving away more money to the states with less strings attached, which is complicated for Congress to not have as much oversight over something. Uh, no real answer, though, from French Hill on his personal preference if that block grant, if, if he thinks Congress should... Uh, keep on having that inflated amount of money that goes with Medicaid expansion to help cover those 300,000 people. No real answer on that, kind of deferred to the governor, but we don't know what how much money he would want Congress to give states in the block grant and whether or not that'd be enough to cover any of these people. And there is talk that uh, the Affordable Care Act could be going away immediately before any kind of replacement is in place. 
what would the impact on Arkansas be? I don't know. I haven't heard that from any Arkansas congressman, really, that they want it immediately be gone. They definitely want, they say they definitely want a replacement plan, though there is no replacement plan currently being considered seriously. I mean, if it went away overnight, then overnight 300, 330,000 low-income people in Arkansas would lose their health insurance entirely. Another 60,000 60, who are on the insurance marketplace would lose subsidies for their coverage. But as we all know, the health care law is so complicated, the implications would you know, wreck the state budget. Rural hospitals would no longer get funding for uncompensated care. So there's the way Asa Hutchinson put the argument to state legislators was, we've just spent the last eight years dismantling our old health care system to replace it with this one. So if we get rid of it, those old structures don't necessarily exist anymore. Well, from Washington to the uh, state capitol, uh, week two of the uh, legislative session, and uh, already one of the uh, uh, key proposals from Governor Asa Hutchinson uh, is making progress. A uh, House panel on Thursday uh, advanced two separate measures that would provide tax relief to low-income citizens. Chris, uh, one of those is uh, derived from the governor's uh, $50 million uh, plan, but uh, uh, the other uh, one, led by uh, Democrat Warwick Sabin, uh, is also uh, advancing. Yeah, and they're they're comparable in a way. One would cost, as you said, $15 million to the state. The other is projected to cost about $40 million, the Sabin plan. Let's start with the $50 million one first. As you mentioned, it passed out of the House Revenue and Taxation Committee on Thursday, a day before it passed out of the Senate or an identical bill um, for the $50 million cut passed out of the Senate Revenue and Taxation Committee, and that's likely to be taken up for a vote in the Senate next week. What it basically does, that one, it gives a marginal tax cut rate, or cut in the marginal rate for people making less than $21,000 a year. It's estimated that about uh, 657 people in the state uh, 657,000 people in the state would be affected by it. Um, basically, those making between maybe about zero and $4,200 a year, I think, would uh, see their state income taxes reduced to zero. Um, and for the next several thousand um, dollars in income that people make up to 21000 they'll see you know just kind of marginal tax rate cuts. Um, that passed unanimously out of the Senate committee and also the House committee. Um, in the Senate committee, there's five Republicans and three Democrats that sit on that. Uh, no real debate. Jim Hendren, the st uh, state Senate majority leader, who's also the nephew of the governor, is the lead sponsor in the Senate. There has been some issue about you know, five out of the last six months, uh, state revenue has been coming in uh, below projections, and it's still kind of below projections for the total fiscal year, although December um, was was a little bit better. But um, he, he was asked, uh, you know, after this meeting, after he presented his bill in the committee, um, whether he was comfortable with this tax cut plan, given the revenue uh, figures right now. I absolutely am, and again, because of the, not, would I be, I would be a little bit less comfortable if this took effect immediately, or if it took effect the end of this fiscal year. But we've got an entire fiscal session if we needed to adjust because revenue reports lag, 
but uh, so yeah, I think this is this gives us something to build on. It gives us a process because we all, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst. So we're going to hope and I, I think believe that Arkansas is going to continue to grow and create jobs, and we'll be able to continue down this path. But it also gives us time that if we need to adjust, we certainly have the ability to do that. So as he mentioned, it doesn't take effect right away. If it were passed, uh, the income tax cuts would go into effect in 2019. Uh, another thing this bill does, it would create a task force to uh, that would, it's, I think, a 16-member task force uh, appointed by the various leaders in the House and Senate that would study, you know, taxes in the state and tax legislation with the possibility of uh, suggesting new kinds of tax reforms or tax cuts or um, any kind of tax legislation that could be considered in 2019 session. I think they have a mandate to submit two reports, one in 2018, one in 2017, um, to, for, on that purpose. Um, now, context here, uh, last, uh, last legislative regular session, the governor uh, had campaigned on you know, this big $100 million tax cut plan for middle and high income earners, and that passed. Uh, a lot of Democrats at the time were, um, you know, wondering, you know, is the are the low income brackets going to be affected, or you know, or will there be eventual legislation affecting them as well? During that session, uh, Democratic State Representative Warwick Saban um, also introduced this earned income tax credit idea. Uh, it's kind of a ba it's kind of based on this federal program where. Uh, People in low-income brackets and people with children, married with children, um, get a tax credit um, at the end of their tax-paying year uh, after they file taxes based on a, a number of indicators, including number of children you have. It, it kind of um, extends, I guess, the, the benefit of, of it. Um, for instance, a, a married couple of two kids um, gets under the federal program about could get at least uh, a little oh, little over $2000 uh under Saban's plan this year which is the same as last year um in the state uh, in earned income tax credit plan the uh benefit would be about 5% of the the benefit from that federal plan so that married with two kids getting $2,200 on the federal level would get $300 back on the state level under his plan. It's a little complicated, but um, Saban's argument basically is that it, it incentivizes work, it helps bring people out of poverty, it's been proven to work on the federal level, but also in, I think, 26 other states in the District of Columbia that have implemented it over the last 30 years. And the thing is, it's a competing measure. And it... He brought it before the Revenue and Tax Com Committee in the House on the same day as the governor's plan was passed unanimously. It also passed on a voice vote. Um, there was a little bit of dissension. It's mainly backed by Democratic lawmakers, uh, but there is some bipartisan support. For instance, um, Senator Jake Files, who's a Republican in the Senate, chairman of the Senate Revenue and Taxation Committee, is a co-sponsor of Saban's bill. And... Um, the uh, committee chairman of the Revenue Taxation Committee in the House, uh, Joe Jett, representative from Success, is also a co-sponsor. And um, 
let me play this cut by by Sabin. Um, there is this issue that you know there's these dueling plans. One costs forty million. One costs fifty million. Sabin was asked like why after his measure passed, you know why put forward the two competing proposals at the same time this early in the session. What I did was I proposed the EITC in the most simple manner possible through legislation, knowing that there's the opportunity to amend it if we want to make it comparable to the governor's proposal and have it delayed until 2019 the way his is. But I thought it was important for people to understand exactly what the EITC is before we started playing around with the dates of implementation or how it may or may not be phased in or out. Sabin basically wants to do a compromise with the governor's plan. That's what he's kind of shooting for. That's what Democrats are shooting for, to have some kind of compromise between the marginal tax rate cut plan and the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit Plan. So we'll see going forward whether, I mean, this both these measures, um, the governor's plan and Sabin's plan, are going to the full House. It's unclear whether they'll get a vote right away. We'll see. Um, I think the governor had been out of town this week, but he's coming back and uh, Democratic lawmakers were saying that, you know, they wanted to meet with the governor and his and, you know, represent, or, and others who are behind his plan to try to work out something. But it's unclear whether that will happen. Be kind of interesting if they can make some because Democrats have no claim to achieving anything for the most part when they go to voters. But you know, Hutchinson opposed this in 2015 when Sabin tried it then, even though it was bipartisan support then. The governor didn't support it, but it's kind of interesting because if if it gets enough traction in the media anyway, then they could later say that the governor opposed a tax cutting measure for low income people. Yeah, um, I mean, the, I I would imagine that the rhetoric that the people behind that are opposed to this plan, I mean, there, it it is in a way a tax cutting measure, but it's it's kind of a, a a check that you get after. So it's, I mean, there could be some linguistical uh, gymnastics around. Yeah, I mean, I guess they could they could say you know opposing tax relief, but we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, updating uh, another item that we've uh, talked about in uh, last week's podcast, uh, a bill now heads to the uh, governor, who is expected to sign it into law. This gives a slight delay for the uh, medical marijuana launch. Uh, lawmakers, uh, uh, the House voted Thursday uh, 91 to 0 for an amendment to the measure, giving agencies until early May uh, rather than early March to uh, finalize rules for the program. Uh, the Senate uh, earlier in the day Thursday uh, also approved a delay by a 27 to 0 vote. So uh, no real surprise there. Nothing's changing, but uh, uh, you've got uh, the uh, uh, committee that's uh, overseeing creation of the rules uh, just working to get everything finalized, and uh, that takes time. KUAR, Kaylory had a promotional event this week called Black Beer and Bourbon. Uh, one of the board members, Jacob White, is an attorney with the Rose Law, the Rose Law Firm, and he's gone to all the medical marijuana commission meetings. And he sent out a statement to different media outlets. He's kind of he kind of thinks this delay, one, it's allowing state agencies to have more time to get their act together, kind of to I- implement the thing. But he also thinks it's uh, intentional from various special interest groups that are trying to get more time with legislators to try to further restrict the program, or mostly uh, part of the. The bill allows for cultivation centers and distribution centers, 
And these dispensaries that it also allows for, they can also grow a certain amount of plants as well. And so uh, his theory is that the dispensaries, uh, there's a lot of effort to try to regulate how many plants a dispensary can grow because there's huge amounts of dollars involved with those those operations and the larger cultivation centers. So who knows what's really behind it? <laughs> yeah, and well, you had uh, groups like uh, uh, the Family Council after this was approved by voters putting out press releases saying, oh, just wait till uh, uh, the legislature comes to this and mm -hmm. suggesting that's when uh, roadblocks would be put up. But uh, we'll find out. Uh, one other measure, uh, we had the uh, um, House Education Committee uh, meet on Thursday to get uh, kind of an overview of uh, uh, bills that are up for consideration involving the Arkansas lottery. And uh, I spoke with uh, uh, Senator uh, Jimmy Hickey, a Republican of Texarkana, who has been uh, very involved in uh, lottery uh, matters, and uh, he spoke uh, to this uh, committee, uh, again, kind of giving uh, an overview. A key concern uh, he has is if the lottery ends up earning uh, more than uh, what's needed to maintain the uh, $100 million that it takes to uh, run the program annually, how will that money be spent? Uh, and uh, he's wanting kind of a firm plan uh, put in place. Really not any concerns, and we're not changing the current uh, payout of the lottery as far, or as far as the lottery scholarship's going. What we're trying to do is develop a system so that if we have more money through our operations of the lottery, that we'll have an avenue of where to place that money. As I said during the committee meeting, and this changes on a year-to-year year-to-year basis, but it actually takes approximately $100 million to pay for the scholarships for the Arkansas students. What we're trying to do, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen, even though we strive for it to, if the lottery was to make more fu funds over and above what's needed, let's just say that we make an extra $10 million, what we're trying to do is we're trying to structure an avenue that this body will come up with on where they want want to disperse those funds. In other words, what students do they want those to have? They may want those additional funds to go to first-year students. They may want those funds to go to workforce development programs. As I said, I've had members that have even mentioned that they possibly may want that uh, money to go pay, to pay off debt of students that have uh, already have already passed uh, degree programs that are in high-interest fields. So there's all type of different things, you know, where the money could go. Of course, that'll be up to this body and, and to find a consensus on that. And that's what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to develop a census through the House and Senate of what that'll be. And where are we at this point in the process? Just where we are. We're at the start of the session. The bills are filed. They're available for me to amend. As we develop this consensus, I'll go in and amend it the way we need to. And hopefully by the end of the session, we'll come up with a bill that everybody can live with. And I should note, just for a little background, back in July, we had a report that uh, said for the previous fiscal year that ended at the uh, end of June, uh, the lottery was enjoying record-breaking sales over the previous year. Uh, apparently, uh, that report said uh, it took in uh, total ticket sales $455 million dollars an increase over 11% from the fiscal year 
So uh, I think lawmakers are wanting to uh, have a plan at this point, just uh, if indeed the lottery does make more money, how is that money uh, spent? Uh, And uh, Hickey heard from uh, several members during the meeting, uh, including uh, Representative John Walker, a Democrat of Little Rock, who said he wants to make sure that additional money would only benefit students graduating from Arkansas high schools rather than those who uh, maybe live in this state but attend out-of-state schools, uh, as actually happens in uh, uh, Texarkana. Uh, So uh, concerns there, but just uh, very preliminary, several uh, bills filed at this point related to that. And just a note to listeners, uh, I am of no relation, no relation. to Jimmy Hickey <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> no. So you could be. <laughs> we might share distant ancestors. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no surprise here. We had a legislative committee uh, that advanced uh, a bill that would outlaw an abortion procedure that uh, opponents call savage, barbaric, while uh, others like uh, Planned Parenthood say it's uh, uh, the safest way to end a pregnancy in the second trimester. Uh, That was a proposal by a lawmaker who is also president of Arkansas Right to Life that would ban dilation and evacuation, uh, also known as P&E abortion. Uh, Their measure passed uh, Thursday in the Public Health, Welfare, and Labor Committee on a voice vote. Any thoughts there? Do you think this uh, will continue advancing? I bet it'll probably pass. Um, I I believe the Associated Press report said that about 18% of the 3,700-plus abortions in the state are done through this procedure, so very common. Of course, totally medically acceptable in terms of the safety of it. It's um, certainly going to probably be held to be, uh, well, it's probably going to be held to be unconstitutional in the end, Several other states have done this, not too many, but several other states have, and uh, those measures are held up in court right now. But uh, And Julie Mayberry is Andy Mayberry's wife, and she held his seat last legislative session, and she also had a number of bills that kind of edged, uh, rest- that further restricted abortions, some, some of which have been overturned. Uh, another uh, item, uh, Chris, you've reported on this. Y'all talked about it last week. Uh, resolution now heads to the full house for a vote concerning uh, dinosaurs. Yeah, that's right. State Representative Greg Letting's house resolution, uh, he's from Fayetteville, to make Arkansas Friday the official state dinosaur that advanced out of a committee this week. Um, Letting was accompanied by the petitioner and initial campaigner, a high school student, uh, I think his name is Mason Cypress Uri, who uh, made a case for the dinosaur um, to be a official state dinosaur, and he charmed the crowd and advanced out of committee. It looks like it's got a lot of bipartisan support, and Jacob also covered this last week, so if you want to fill in. Uh, it's from the early Cretaceous period. It's the only dinosaur bones that have ever been presented to the scientific community from Arkansas, according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. So Arkansas has virtually no claim to dinosaurs, except for this one little thing. It's in Nashville, Arkansas, and southwest Arkansas. So happens the other sponsor, as uh, besides uh, Representative Letting, is State Senator Larry Teague of Nashville, the home of this dinosaur. So, clear parochial interest for both of them. 
Yeah, and I think uh, Mason, when he was uh, making his case before the committee, he noted that I think nine other states include uh, have a state dinosaur. They include some of our border states like Texas and Oklahoma and Missouri. Um, so, you know, if uh, Arkansas wants to catch up with its border rivals, this is a good way. Uh, this is something I, I think if this does actually pass, so, somebody has to ask this eventually. The, I mean, there are many state leg- We didn't mention religion in the abortion bills. That's the reason why they're trying to restrict abortion is because fundamentally they believe that abortion is murder. So also why I'm bringing it into the dinosaur discussion is that uh, many legislators don't believe in evolution or probably that the earth is hundreds of millions of years old or that the universe is billions of years old. So, I mean, this dinosaur roamed Arkansas a hundred million years ago. It'd be kind of interesting to me if they passed it because they would probably disagree with the science behind what that creature actually is. I guess we could find out uh, when it comes up for some debate in the full house. That'll be interesting. Well, Jacob, we had a uh, bill uh, that's uh, advancing regarding uh, the supplemental nutritional uh, assistance program. Assistance program, commonly known as food stamps, so it's now on a card. But uh, mm-hmm. a bill that would uh, restrict the use of food stamps uh, was taken up and uh, passed mm-hmm. by uh, the House Public. Health Committee on Tuesday. Yeah, so this is restriction to SNAP benefits. Um, this idea has kind of been floated around for a while. When I was in high school student congress, somebody, some kid from some high school tried to do this, but we failed it <laughs> back in the day. So let me just get into the discussion, though, that happened in committee. Mary Bentley is a Republican uh, representative from Perryville. It's her second term. Uh, here's her main reason, health and well-being of the people. I want the kids in our state to have sippy cups that are full of good fresh milk from Arkansas dairies and fruit juice and not Mountain Dew and Pepsi. So that's 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 the big one. Her second reason, maybe a bigger reason, is it cut down on costs to the state's Medicaid program. Obesity-related diseases in our state cost $1.25 million She meant to say billion. 40% of that comes from Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, if we have any hope of bending this cost curve of Medicaid in our state, we've got to do something to make a difference. We can just continue acting like this doesn't exist and the legislature has no part, but we as a legislature can make a real difference. So if this were to happen, Arkansas would be the first state in the nation to have this restriction. Sort of. Maine has already passed a bill like this. But the big catch on all of this is since SNAP is a federal program, kind of like Medicaid discussions we have, any of these changes have to get a waiver at the federal level, at the federal level for, some, for, some, for some way. Uh, Bentley and others are hopeful that a Trump administration will accept the waiver to restrict food stamps. But the other argument is there's a SNAP law and there's certain parameters in that and these kind of restrictions based on previous administrations have fallen outside of the intent of SNAP. It's not only liberals arguing against the restriction. Here's Paul Paul Routon. He was uh, vice president of Edwards Food Giant, which is an Arkansas-based grocery store. There's 13 stores here, over 700 employees. He had two main arguments. One, they'd be economically damaging, that they're putting too much burden on grocers, and it's too complicated to do because it's hard to define what junk food is. And the other, he also had a conservative argument that this is creating a big government food list. The average grocery store in Arkansas carries approximately 45,000 different items and is tasked with reviewing up to 15,000 new items per year. The proposal to restrict SNAP choice would lead to a government-created food list. And there was a 12 to 6 committee vote. Uh, there, I think there's a Republican or two that voted against it. There were certainly some Republicans that abstained from voting altogether because they didn't like this idea of government picking what food you're supposed to eat. 
Uh, Kathy Webb, she's a former Democratic state lawmaker. She's the head of the Arkansas Hunger Relief Alliance, certainly someone who knows what she's or is very familiar with uh, people who are, have food insecurity issues. She, one of her arguments against it was that people on food stamps, they don't eat any worse than people not on food stamps in terms of choosing junk food or healthy food. Another argument was that there are things called food deserts, that if you have these restrictions, it means people go to convenience stores and just be able to buy nothing. They're not going to suddenly be healthy, cheap options in, in gas stations. Uh, her ma- her, the main case, she says, if you want to help this problem or curb obesity is nutrition education. She says that's proven to be the, the best way to fix these kind of things. Uh, Bentley's bill also had some questioning, you know, what constitutes junk food. Um, she tasked the State Department of Human Services to create a list based on federal WIC guidelines. Kathy Webb pointed out that WIC is for women, infants, and children, not necessarily seniors or anybody else in the general population. So that food list is kind of tailored a certain way. Okay. Uh, where, where's that, uh, Bill? What's that happening? What's happening next? Uh, it's going to head to the House floor next week, and uh, I, I guess it's got a good shot. And part of the reason I think why it has a better— it might be a benefit to the bill's passing that it might not ever go into effect because it requires that federal waiver. So they can go ahead and pass it, and no restrictions will actually come into place. Mm. Well, finally, one uh, legislative item. Uh, this one uh, concerns uh, an ethics program. Arkansas Public Media's Bobby Ampazon, uh, you covered uh, uh, this hearing. Uh, yeah, it didn't actually come up in the Senate Committee on State Agencies and Governmental Affairs. Uh, as you know, an agenda is set and then uh, regularly <laughs> ignored or things get moved around. But I did visit with the Senate Minority Leader, Keith Ingram of West Memphis, He's filed about a half dozen bills dealing with ethics. Uh, he's joined by several other Democrats, including most prolifically Clark Tucker has three or four bills, and then Warwick Sabin and others have filed ethics legislation. It's a package of about a dozen bills that will come up before committees, and these range from pretty small um, revisions to amendments all the way to Ingram's filed uh, a bill that would yank judicial immunity from judges subsequently found guilty of felonies, specifically bribes. It's uh, a legislative rejoinder to the case of Faulkner County uh, Circuit Judge uh, Michael Maggio, uh, who reduced uh, an award to a family from $5 million to $1 million. Uh, Later, it was found out that the award was coming uh, from nursing home magnate Michael Morton, uh, who had contributed substantially to Maggio's, uh, the the fund that he would draw on to to run for a higher uh, judicial seat. Anyway, that's off in the weeds a little bit. The, the interesting thing about, so, so these bills are going to come up soon in committee, probably next week. And the interesting thing is that the Democrats have kind of joined together to come up with all this ethics legislation that ultimately Republicans will be the ones uh, weighing. And I spoke to at least one Republican senator who sits on the Senate Committee, Committee for State Agencies and Governmental Affairs, Senator Bart Hester of Cave Springs, this committee, by the way, is interesting because there's not a single Democrat on it, and it's going to—it's the one that's going to consider five of Ingram's ethics amendments. So maybe we'll listen to what Hester had to say about the the politics of these ethics amendments. 
You know, we already have an ethics uh, department. We already have uh, ethics, you know, and certainly things are against the law, right? Uh, but, we, you know, we'll look at them individually. I think there's some things that I read that will have merit. Uh, I made some notes. I can't remember what those exactly are, but some things I thought had merit, some things I thought were unnecessary. Keith Ingram is the Senate minority leader for the Democrats. Right. On the Senate committee, there's not a single Democrat. And I just can't help but think that th that's got to play out in some ways. I mean, if I were a Republican, I'm not sure that I would want a Democrat submitting a slate of ethics legislation. Well, I mean, I, I think there, obviously you can't remove politics from uh, from this building. And, uh, you know, if there's going to be if there's going to be an ethics reform package, uh, it will be something the Republicans totally agree with or something that we that we present. Um, you know, that's why I think they got out early. They, they, you know, they put a lot of time and effort into it. But if an ethics reform package comes through, it'll be something that the Republicans fully support or something that we present. So does it uh, look like this has a chance of actually coming up? It'll come up in committee, and I I really only talked to Hester and uh, another legislator, and I I just think that uh, these bills will, uh, yeah, I think a lot of them won't make it out of committee. Um, and this is the new reality for Democrats under the Capitol Dome is I don't I, I don't think very many of their um, sponsored bills will. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through uh, as they are. All right, Bobby. Well, finally, uh, this week, uh, Little Rock School Superintendent Michael Poor uh, angered a lot of people. He announced uh, the district's latest plans for budget cuts in order to contend with a $37 million loss in state desegregation aid. And uh, this calls for the closure of a couple of elementary schools as well as an early uh, childhood center. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I watched um, Poor's press conference earlier this week announcing these plans, which had been kind of anticipated for the last several months. A lot of community groups, um, parents, etc., had been lobbying uh, Poor and the administration and even the governor's office against uh, what almost seemed like an inevitable announcement, just in the sense that it was anticipated. And, you know, we're all, all three of us live in Little Rock, and you know I'm sure everyone here knows somebody or is personally connected with um, Little Rock schools in some way, or has you know knows somebody who sends a child there. So I mean, it's it's definitely a difficult difficult news to hear in a, in a way, um, and you know because it, it it does affect the community in a lot of ways, but. Basically, what the school district is contending with is loss of $37 million in uh, aid from the state. That was the result of a settlement on um, the de long-running desegregation case that ended um, in 2014. The school district, for the last uh, few years since then, has been uh, cutting back on you know its expenses. And poor, you know, he's been in the job for, uh, I guess, not quite a year since the summer of last year, uh, installed by the state. Uh, obviously, the district is uh, taken over by the state under the administration of Johnny Key, the uh, commissioner of education, uh, because of six schools that are were deemed in academic distress a couple years ago. Now... The schools that Poor announced that are closing are Franklin and Wilson Elementary Schools and the Woodruff 
Early Childhood Education Center, and which is a pre-K um, center. Uh, his basic reasoning is that these schools have seen population declines uh, in their enrollment areas for the last 15 years with accelerated population declines in the last three years. And it is inefficient to keep um, operating schools that don't enroll to their full capacity. I'm going to play you a cut of Poor's press conference. As you think about the things that we're going through and the realities of our community in Little Rock, I think one of the things that struck me is that this is a community that values choice. I've heard and seen that in a variety of different ways um, as I've entered into the district. And I think that one of the things that, that we have within this district is very, very attractive choices, whether that's in our traditional school delivery and the work that we're doing. Again, I'm going to highlight some of those things later, but also in our magnet programs and our extracurricular programs. And we're working every day to try to make that choice a reality for parents. We also know that there are facts and reality that we really can't move away from. Population trends that have existed in this district for over 15 years. That was before charter schools that we started to lose students. So, yeah, he mentions their uh, charter schools. And, you know, one of the issues that came up last year with the district is that, you know, there's an expansion of Lisa and East M charter schools uh, that were approved by the State Board of Education, seen by many detractors as uh, taking away resources and children who would otherwise be, you know, going to the LRSD, diverting them to this uh, charter school system, which, um, you know, you know, gets the district losing, uh, you know, some pure pupil funding and, and some other, um, I guess, investment uh, from, you know, community members, either, you know, personal or in, in diverting maybe middle or high income students uh, of a certain class uh, to those charters. As a part of all these budget cuts, um, which I guess entail about $41 million, um, if you consider the cuts that have been occurring since 2014 and that are planned going forward into 2018. Um, along with that, Poor announced earlier on Tuesday uh, a district-wide hiring freeze. There's going to be maybe some uh, staffing cuts on the secondary school level for you know, high schools. Uh, as well as in the administration. Um, he also uh, said that, you know, he would like for a special election to be held on March 14th to extend the district's debt, or at least that's how he characterizes it. Some, um, uh, some opponents of, you know, his general plans are characterizing it as a, a tax increase. Um, he says that there are over $300 million in uh you know, capital needs for the district, uh, physical needs. Uh, he cites, um, you know, the district wanting to uh, build a new Southwest Little Rock High School uh, to, you know, send uh, kids who currently go to McClellan and J.A. Fair, um, a new building for that. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely hard to hear for a lot of people, and certainly there are a lot of parents uh, and groups that are angry about this who, you know, didn't like the possibility of hearing about 
the closures of these uh, neighborhood schools from the very beginning. Oh, and and I'll send it to Jacob, who, who's got um, you know some comments from that. But I will say this last thing is that um, Poor did announce that Carver Elementary, which is on the east side of the city, uh, would remain open. That was one of the schools that had been floated as a possibility of closing. Uh, the basic reasoning is that, you know, charter has been seen by both, you know, the community and the district as kind of a success academically, but it's also on the side of the, the city that's um, undergoing a bit of a revival in terms of businesses uh, establishing bases there. And uh, Poor said, you know, they, they saw, saw the potential for residential growth and population growth in that, in that area. Yeah, and I, I'll try not to talk too much. To rehash the entire thing, <laughs> the, the, uh, I'm gonna I'm mostly gonna be quoting from a statement that came out from this group called Save Our Schools, which has been a lot of these people that have been in these community advisory groups for a number of years. Uh, for, you might remember the community advisory group uh, called for Johnny Key to resign, the state education commissioner. So that's the public feedback they've been getting for years from from this group, which is community members, the dissolved school board, and other traditional public school advocates. And one of their complaints about these financial cuts and closing the schools is the only reason Michael Poor gets to make this decision is because Johnny Key gave him the job. And the only reason Johnny Key has any say is because the state took, t- took over the district from the locally elected leaders. And they took it over because six of the 48 schools are in academic distress. The district was not taken over because it was in financial distress. And here they are making these huge financial decisions that will last a generation or so. When it's, you know, their argument is the state shouldn't be making these decisions at all in the first place. And with academic distress, the tests they use to determine they're in academic distress, they state through them out that they, they, we don't use them anymore. In this last year, there have been zero tests of accountability because they put a one-year moratorium on it. So there's lots of arguments there about the whole re- of community members not thinking the state should have any say at all, not even whether this decision is good or is bad but it's not their decision to make it all, is kind of the argument. Um, Here's some of their statement, though. They say, we want to firmly denounce the proposed closure of any schools on Superintendent Poor's list. Uh, They say part of that is they're trying to make it a bigger picture than maybe Michael Poor is allowed to because his budget is the school district budget. But everybody knows that the school affects the neighborhood around it, not just the students inside of it. So their argument is, if you look holistically at the city, Closing these schools down is going to end up costing a lot more money for the community as a whole, maybe not the individual school district, though. Um, they also don't believe the information from Poor's office. They call it, quote, uh, false and unsubstantiated information that's been presented to us. They don't see that those savings will be generated the way Poor says they will, since they're keeping a lot of the staff and some of the facilities and just moving them elsewhere. And the theory behind that from, from this, these kind of groups are, that they're just trying to vacate the building so that charter schools can come in and buy them up. Um, it's a school building. It's there waiting for them. Um, a couple more things from this statement. is about two pages long. They note that the impact of the budget cuts on the district are entirely among majority African-American communities, mostly south of I-630. So it, if they... This is the quote. While Superintendent Poor continues to insist the budget shortfall is a district-wide issue, his proposal cuts will not. His proposed budget cuts will not be equitably shared. So, but as Chris, you mentioned his argument was it's all based on populations for these neighborhoods and different uh, trends of people leaving the area and things like that. So, uh, and in this whole movement against 
the state control of it. They've cloaked themselves the entire times in the history of the Little Rock Nine. This is one of the last sentences. In the tradition of the Little Rock Nine, we are determined to eliminate injustice and inequity and replace it with fairness and equality. So they place this as part of a long-running historic battle for uh, the state not acting in the interest of African Americans in the Little Rock School District in favor of the business community. Well, on that note, we'll uh, wrap up this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Hiplin. I'm Jacob Kaufman. I'm Chris Hickey. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. KUAR is a listener-supported, editorially independent service of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock.